Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Program number 7723 and 7724. The Love Child of Darth Vader and the Kool-Aid Man for the weeks of June 6th and June 13th, 1977. Welcome back to a sweltering summer edition of Retrogram, the podcast where we go back in time, throw some vintage sci-fi, fantasy, horror, spy-fi, and superhero TV on the grill, cook it until it's crispy golden brown, and... Man, anyone else getting hungry? Uh, anyway, Retrogram is all about re-watching those shows with a fresh eye and reporting back to those of you living in the 21st century, and hopefully you're taking a little break from your flying cars, your meals in a pill, and spandex jumpsuits to listen to me talk about these quaint gems from the past. By the way, that's why I stay in the past, because there is no way I need to be anywhere near spandex. This week is kind of the middle chapter of a trilogy. Wow, who in the world would start in the middle chapter of a trilogy? Well, it is 1977, so your guess is as good as mine. The Atari video computer system was months away from making its debut around Christmas time, though at the beginning of June of 77, Nintendo debuted its first home video game in Japan, which was a licensed clone of the Magnavox Odyssey in a brightly colored casing. It was also around this time that a new hire at Nintendo, Shigeru Miyamoto, started working on designing similarly brightly colored casings for future color TV game models. The Apple II computer had just hit the market. The Queen's Silver Jubilee was in full swing in the UK. The Supremes and Elvis Presley both made their final concert appearances. Unlike the Supremes, Elvis would only be alive for another couple of months. The space shuttle was weeks away from taking its first free flight off the back of a Boeing 747, and Voyagers 1 and 2 were in final preparations for launch. Oh, and Quebec was weeks away from declaring French its official language. But the big thing on the pop culture radar was that Star Wars fever had taken hold of the nation, a condition for which there was apparently no cure other than getting back in line at the local movie house and buying another ticket for another showing of Star Wars. Was there ever a worse time to be in the business of putting science fiction on TV? Because, to put it mildly, Star Wars reset the registers for the public's expectations of sci-fi on a screen, and anything with a TV budget, frankly, was going to have a hard time keeping up with the shock of the new that everyone was bringing home from the theater. Case in point, two weeks in June 1977. Retrogram normally covers one week, but this time we're doing two because each week in these summer doldrums of 77, had only one genre show of note. The first week saw the quiet retirement of a fascinating fantasy show that had premiered at the beginning of the year. The second week saw an attempt to launch a new superhero made just for TV, with some very familiar talent behind the scenes. Did either of these shows stand a chance, once kids had X-Wings and TIE Fighters flying through their imaginations? Thank you. 
The Fantastic Journey, Episode 10, The Innocent Prey, aired Monday, June 6th on NBC. The story so far. It started with a research trip by boat into the heart of the Bermuda Triangle. Dr. Paul Jordan and his son Scott headed up a team of professional and student researchers on the trip, including freshly graduated med student Dr. Fred Walters. But what they found in the Triangle? Deafening noise, darkening skies, a violent storm with glowing green clouds, and then they found themselves washed up on an island, shipwrecked, and unable to contact the mainland for help. And the island wasn't on any of the charts. It really shouldn't be there at all, prompting speculation that it might be the lost continent of Atlantis. This island is broken up into several different time zones, some populated by 18th century pirates who only just got shipwrecked there themselves, others populated by more futuristic societies with technology far beyond what the rest of the world knows in 1977. Young Scott Jordan befriends Varian, an alien who has become trapped here himself, but has a strong sense of right and wrong and joins the shipwreck survivors to protect them. One futuristic society, Atlantium, sends everyone except Scott and Fred back to their own time, and they kind of want to hand Scott over to their local evil brain in a jar so it has a healthy young body to take over, which of course would mean goodbye Scott. But one of the Atlanteans, a woman named Liana, who frequently carries an Atlantean cat named Sil L, with whom she has a telepathic bond, because, of course, you have telepathic bond with your cat, she decides this is wrong. Liana helps Varian and Fred overthrow this plan and rescue Scott. They escape through one of the portals into other time zones on the island, where eventually they meet an amoral outcast cyberneticist from the 60s, Dr. Jonathan Willoway, who joins them on their quest. But who knows where that quest will lead? The Innocent Prey Space Shuttle 467 is on approach, returning to Earth. That's perfectly normal. It's on a really fast, unsurvivable approach to Earth. That's totally not nominal. nominal. They can't even fire their landing rockets. You know, space shuttles totally have those. On the island, Varian, Scott, Fred, and Willoway are awakened by the sound of the shuttle crashing somewhere nearby. But those landing rockets must have worked because the shuttle manages to not pancake when it comes down. Everyone survives the landing. The commander of the mission arms himself and says he needs to check on someone in the detention room, because space shuttles totally have those too. There's a bunk bed in the detention room with a man belted into each bunk, but the man in the top bunk, York, manages to free himself and get the drop on the commander, disarming him and then vaporizing him with his own laser gun. Because, hey, flying saucer-shaped space shuttles totally have laser guns, too, outside the detention room and across the cockpit from the controls to the landing rockets. York asks the younger man in the bottom bunk, Ty, if he's still with him, and tells him to take care of the co-pilot, who was injured in the rough landing. Although, to be honest, Ty doesn't look so great himself. Varian and his fellow travelers reach the down shuttle, and the hatch opens, with two men coming out, including an injured co-pilot being helped along by, presumably, his commander. But it's York and Ty wearing uniforms taken from the crew that was bringing them home for, presumably, some kind of space crimes. Willoway's about to check inside for any other survivors, but Commander York warns his new friends that the ship is likely to explode. Varian calls Willoway away from the shuttle. Fred examines Ty and says he's got a mild concussion and needs some rest. When Ty awakes, York weirdly reminds him, Hey, remember how you fell against the control console when we crash-landed and injured yourself? 
All that's missing is a wink-wink and a nudge-nudge. Cut to Croquet of the Future. But since this is Croquet of the Future, it's not played with mallets, but with the mind. By a handsome young couple, Roland and Natika. They're surprised when Varian and company pop out of the nearby foliage. The travelers are taken by the space croquet couple to meet Roland's father, Rayat, who's playing with puppies of the future. Rayat is also the leader of this community. It turns out the people here also arrived by way of a spacecraft losing its bearings and coming down on the island. Rayat offers his hospitality and offers Scott a puppy of the future while everyone else gets settled. Back on the space shuttle, which has conspicuously not blown up, Thomas, the actual co-pilot of the shuttle, comes too. Since he was injured and unconscious after the crash, he has no memory of the prisoners escaping or of his commander being vaporized. When he can't find his commander, he sets out on foot to search. Varian and company, along with York and Ty, are getting to know more about their hosts. They live in perfect harmony with nature, and Rayat has something called the Orb, so named because it is an orb, which, with a little concentration, makes it possible for his people to just think stuff into existence. Natika demonstrates by turning a bowl of strawberries into a bowl of precious gems, which kind of sucks if you think about it, because those are going to be way harder to chew. Willoway is fascinated, but a bit disappointed to know that no one really knows how it works, since it traveled here from their home planet when they crashed on the island a generation ago. Willoway is worried that someone might take the orb from Rayat and his people, maybe even by violent force. But Rayat is unfamiliar with such concepts, and Varian hushes Jonathan before he brings any more thoughts on the dark side of humanity to the table. But what Willoway is concerned about out loud, York is already planning in his head without a word. Rather than going to see the living quarters, York takes off down a garden path, and Willoway decides to follow. He's then surprised to see another man emerge from the foliage wearing a uniform like York's, and the reunion from a distance seems cordial enough. Willoway turns to rejoin the tour, leaving York and Thomas behind. This means Willoway is not a witness to the moment that York pulls his laser gun and commits murder of the future. When Willoway sees Fred, he asks, Hey, should Ty be up and around already? Because I just saw him out there with York. That's when Willoway realizes he saw a third man, Ty, is recovering in bed, though the more he sees Natika, the more he's got a thing for her. Willoway, on the other hand, is reverting to form and being a nosy busybody. He's about to search York's room when York shows up, and Willoway has to make up an excuse for being there. Later that night, Willoway and Varian take a walk in the woods, and Willoway shares his suspicions that something is up. York seems to know very little about his spacecraft, which Willoway finds implausible for an astronaut from any era, and he's certain he saw a third man in the same uniform. That's when the two of them find Thomas's radio dropped when he was vaporized. Varian admits it may be time to revisit the crashed shuttle. They run across the ship's logs and discover that York and Ty are trouble. York, in particular, is a convicted murderer with a history of psychotic behavior of the future. Speaking of York, he wakes Ty to start planning some crime, namely to get his hands on the orb. And the people of Rayat's community are the perfect marks. They know nothing of deceit or crime or violence. They'll be pushovers. It's the perfect heist. The next morning, York's up at dawn and tells Roland he'd like a private tour. 
A bit later, Varian and Willoway are about to unload the unfortunate truth on Rayette about York when Natticus screams in the garden. They look out the window, and she's with a stretcher party bringing... Roland's body? Back to the compound. Okay, time for a team meeting, in private. Varian and Willoway bring Fred and Scott up to speed on their discovery about York and Ty. Worried about what a violent criminal York is, Willoway says that informing Rayat and then bailing out may be safest, but Varian and Fred disagree strongly. They brought York here. He's their responsibility. But where do you put a criminal in a society that doesn't even have doors? When Varian and the others tell Rayat of their suspicions, he brushes them off. Murder just isn't a concept he understands, kind of like lies. Rayat decides the best thing to do is ask York what happened. York lies through his teeth, and Rayat says there's nothing more to talk about. As York and Ty scheme further to get their hands on the orb, Fred tells Varian and Willoway about his own upbringing in a tough neighborhood full of bullies like York. And if he has to, he'll stay here to make sure that the serpent they escorted into the Garden of Eden doesn't run roughshod over everyone. And there's an unexpected admission of guilt. Ty tells Natika that everything everyone said about York is true. Scott goes to warn Varian and Fred, unaware that York was listening just outside. Night falls. Scott's missing. Varian and Willoway ask Ty where he is, and he thinks York may have taken him to the shuttle. Ty will help them find Scott. He's been just as afraid of York as anyone else, and that's why he's been going along with him. They find Scott tied up in the shuttle, gagged, but Scott is able to make enough noise to warn them not to come in. York has rigged explosives that'll go off the moment the gravity plating in the entrance detects their weight. With a little help, Fred is able to climb up, get a handhold, and swing over the gravity plate in the entrance to get into the ship and free Scott. Varian says that if York rigged the shuttle to explode, maybe they should go ahead and blow it up. Once they're all outside, of course. York seems pretty satisfied when a distant explosion lights up the night sky as he makes his way back to the compound. It's there that he demands Rayat explain the secrets of the orb to him, but Rayat really doesn't know. It's just something they do, something that happens. The knowledge has been lost. Varian and the others rush into the room, but it's too late. Rayat hands the orb over to York. It begins glowing in York's hands, and he drops to the floor, dead something Natika did with her mind. But then York's alive again, and then he's younger, and then he's a baby in a space uniform. I mean, the uniform is an adult size, and, well, the baby has a convenient swaddle of the future. Rayat puts the orb back in its rightful place. York's innocence has been restored by the orb, and since Rayat's community is missing a man, York will be raised in a more peaceful, nurturing environment, to replace the man he killed as an adult. Ty decides to stay with Natika and Rayat and go straight. And Varian and friends, they go straight into that blue vortex one last time because the series is over. This episode of The Fantastic Journey was written by Robert Hamilton. He was born in Scotland and moved to the U.S. This is a very early entry in his TV writing career. He had already written episodes of Emergency, McLeod, and Serpico. He went on to write the TV movie Bear Essence and several episodes of the series that followed. He also wrote for Spencer for Hire, Magnum P.I., and Matlock, as well as quite a few episodes of Jake and the Fat Man. 
The episode was directed by Vincent McAvity, director of many a beloved Star Trek episode, as well as episodes of Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, The Powers of Matthew Starr, Airwolf, and even the series version of Herbie the Love Bug. This was the final episode of the Fantastic Journey to be produced and broadcast. It wasn't really up to the same level as the early episodes that made it seem like such a fascinating story setup as a series, and in this instance, it was even missing Liana and Sil L. Katie Saylor was apparently ill when this episode was being filmed, so her lines were handed off to the other regulars. Liana was kind of this show's Wonder Woman, so it's safe to assume that she had a much larger share of the action, while a lot of her exposition was divided up between Varian and Willoway. Now, don't get me wrong, Carl Franklin was totally able to strike a sweet gunslinger pose as Fred in this episode, but we had never seen him show any tendency toward that kind of action before in previous episodes of the series. The opening sequence with the spaceship crash is actually pretty exciting stuff. Whoever was cutting the film on this one was living the editor's dream and made it reasonably exciting. Now, I do have to call out their use of the Star Trek Red Alert sound, though you have to keep in mind by this point Star Trek was eight years dead on TV, and its prospects for returning in any form had become more or less a long-running joke to some viewers. So the sound effects library, though we may now think of it as a set of sounds that is forever locked into this one franchise, was available for the, the entirety of the 70s to whoever wanted to pay to use bits of it. It also showed up quite a bit in Quark, for example. The space shuttle. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about the space shuttle. I think something happened. I think what happened was called, hey, we're out of money. Grab a shot of something coming from space to land on Earth from the Columbia Pictures Library because this was a flying saucer. Now, Varian claims that this is a 21st century space shuttle, but look... We already got 21st century space shuttles, or at least we did until 2011. They looked a lot like the 20th century space shuttle that was still waiting patiently for its first flight throughout the 1970s while this episode aired. The crazy thing is that just a few episodes earlier, there was an episode where a kid from the future was showing Scott a model of his people's alien spacecraft, which was a weirdly colorfully painted model of a space shuttle with its external tank and solid rocket boosters. I myself had at least one toy space shuttle by this point, and there was no shortage of books and magazine articles showing what the shuttle would look like at launch. Everyone knew what the shuttle looked like, but I think the episode was probably being finished under the gun of the show's imminent cancellation, and corners had to be cut, so they grabbed a clip from a movie for the saucer and... You know, they just had to come up with something to match as far as the set piece went. Cheryl Ladd shows up here as Natica. This is a fairly early role for her. But as Thomas, the doomed co-pilot, is Gerald McRaney. This is not super early in Gerald's career. He's already appeared in Night Gallery, Barnaby Jones, and The Six Million Dollar Man, among others, by this point. He continued making guest appearances after this in shows like Logan's Run and The Incredible Hulk, but just five years after this, he was one of the stars of Simon and Simon, a show that ran for eight years. Just a year after that, he started a four-year run as the star of Major Dad. And after a few years back on the guest starring circuit, though this time as a much bigger name, he had another starring role in Promised Land, 
a spin-off of Touched by an Angel. The hits just kept on coming. He's also been in Deadwood, Jericho, 24, House of Cards. So it's just kind of interesting to see Gerald McRaney in his pre-stardom days uh, getting vaporized here. Sorry, Gerald. The Fantastic Journey was one of many shows to come out of the 70s juggernaut that was Bruce Lansbury Productions. Bruce was born in the UK, and he was the creator of the early 70s Bill Bixby series The Magician and the 80s series Street Hawk. He also wrote the story for the 1987 reunion movie The Return of the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman, as well as episodes of Buck Rogers in the 25th Century and The Powers of Matthew Starr, both of those series he wrote for under a pseudonym. Without a pseudonym, he wrote for Knight Rider, Murder, She Wrote, the 90s Swamp Thing series, and Zorro. He was a producer on quite a few shows, including The Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible. He was an executive producer of The Fantastic Journey and a supervising producer on Wonder Woman, the first season of Buck Rogers, the fourth season of Knight Rider, and on 88 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Earlier in the 70s, he had been the vice president of creative affairs for Paramount's television division, overseeing shows like Happy Days, Love American Style, and The Brady Bunch. Now, the fact that Bruce Lansbury had such a long run on Murder, She Wrote, of course, may have just a little something to do with the fact that his older sister was Angela Lansbury. I have to give a shout-out to Viavision, or Viavision, not sure which way they like it pronounced, for finally giving The Fantastic Journey a DVD release, even if it was just in Australia. Now, that being said, it's fairly easy to get a hold of, even if you are not in Australia. This show never had a home media release, not even on VHS, so for years and years, if you knew which rocks of the internet to look under, you could find what looked like someone's third or fourth generation Betamax dubs. Stuff like this proves that if the rights can be worked out and even the cultiest of shows gets a release, people like me will gladly fork over good money for a decent transfer. And the transfers are decent. They're very clean. I mean, you can still tell it's a show from the 1970s, but at least it doesn't look like it's being played back on a medium from the 70s. Just release what's in the vaults. Seriously. I mean, streaming services now mean that you don't even have to pay for the supply chain of a physical media release. Just clean it up and put it out there. I'm looking at you, Super Train, and Time Express, and Saturday Supercade, and The Lost Saucer, and Otherworld, and The Highwayman. Look, if The Fantastic Journey, and Manimal, and Voyagers, and The Star Lost can get a DVD release then those shows that I named that have not been released can too. The only thing that one can infer from their lack of availability in this age of streaming media is a dogged determination to leave money on the table. The writing staff behind The Fantastic Journey did go on almost immediately to another show with Bruce Lansbury sort of behind the wheel, and it would appear later in 1977. So you had uh, DC Fontana as the Fantastic Journey story editor. She and quite a few of the writers from this show just transplanted to the series version of Logan's Run over the summer. Don't worry, we'll be back in 1977 in a moment, but we now briefly return to the 21st century for a word from our sponsor. Uh, 
Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as Fangirlish.com and PopCultureRetroRama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at NerdyBlogging.WordPress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of the Logbook.com and its podcasts. So Man aired Saturday, June 18th on NBC. Meet Exo Man. Oh, wait up, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Meet Dr. Nicholas Conrad, college physics professor with way out there ideas about harnessing energy for human use. He pursues these notions in his lab between classes with a couple of student research assistants. He also goes running with Emily Frost, his sweetie who teaches in the art department. Nick's got a pretty good life and a pretty good heart, too. When he sees one of his students, who should be acing physics, dozing off in class because of a job that keeps him up past four in the morning, Nick suggests to his student, Raphael, that he's willing to co-sign on a loan that'll let Raphael quit the job and just be a full-time student and worry about nothing but his grades. Nick Conrad invented student loan debt. Thanks, Nick. So much. Anyway... Raphael's going to meet him at 2 o'clock one day to sign the papers. All this while, we've been cutting away to scenes of mob operatives planning something. Something big. A bank robbery. I think you can see where these plot threads are going to intersect. Nick and Raphael meet at the bank, ready to sign on the loan, and that's when the Leandro brothers attempt their heist. The problem is, the Leando brothers kind of suck at being bank robbers. They fail to keep tabs on the number of armed guards in the place, and before you know it, there's a shootout happening in the bank lobby, and now there's only one Leandro brother left. And I guess that means he's not a brother now that he's fresh out of brothers. Too soon? <clears throat> the last surviving robber takes off on foot. Nick, being an above-average runner, chases him down and catches him, handing him over to the police. Good job, Nick. But the last of the Leandro brothers has a message for Nick just before the cops drag him away. You're a dead man. Over the next few days, Emily and even Raphael prevail upon Nick to get 24-hour police protection because this is the Mafia and they're not going to f*** around. Nick shrugs this off. I am not going to live my life in fear. Wow, how 2020 of you, Nick. When Nick loans one of his student lab assistants his car keys to run for a late-night pizza to bring back to the lab... There's an explosion in the garage. Nick's car is destroyed. Nick's student is destroyed. Nick's confidence is destroyed. Okay, maybe 24-hour police protection doesn't sound so bad now. But a cooped-up Nick is an unhappy Nick. He wants to go running again. The police suit up in their tracksuits and grudgingly accompany him for a run. And that's not when it happens. When it happens is when Nick goes to the laundromat next. The officer covering Nick's back is attacked and knocked out, and then Nick is assaulted by a guy with the metal pipe. 
one agonizing hit in just the wrong part of the spine, not only is Nick down, but he's never getting up again, at least not of his own accord. When he wakes up in the hospital, he's told he'll be paralyzed for life from the waist down. What's worse is that Nick now gets a phone call in his hospital room telling him to shut up or Emily will be next. And suddenly, Dr. Nicholas Conrad, the hero of our story, withdraws his willingness to testify in the last Leandro Brothers trial because they've just leveled up to Super Leandro Brothers, and holy crap, if these guys get a fire flower and not just a mushroom, he's done for. Nick, now using a wheelchair, returns to teaching his classes and doing his lab work, but his heart's just not in it anymore. He's a beaten man, literally. A member of the Governor's Commission on Crime, who bears a striking resemblance to TV's Harry Morgan, pays Nick a visit in his classroom with a binder of photos. I'll bet one of the men in this binder is your attacker, he tells Nick. We just need to know who he is. Nick feigns disinterest, but he goes through the book after TV's Harry Morgan leaves, and quickly finds the face he'll never forget, the man who left him crippled. His name is Emil Horst. Well, so his attacker's name is now a thing that Nick knows. Time to get back to the lab, where all of a sudden, Nick finally manages to prove one of his theories in practice, metal that stores energy and moves itself. Well, that's cool. While a despondent Nick mopes at Emily's art exhibition, he sees a suit of armor on display and wonders, what if you made a suit of armor out of metal that can move itself? Back to the lab. To the bewilderment of his colleagues and people like Raphael and Emily, Nick has a body cast made and sets about duplicating that cast in bulletproof metal while also spending time in the lab basically making a chainmail suit out of self-moving metal. The early tests are promising. Nick actually manages to walk more or less on his own late one night for the first time since being assaulted. This is about the time that Nick remembers Raphael's brother is a cop. Nick asks Raphael if his brother, the cop, can provide him any info on where Emil Horst lives and hangs out. Raphael is worried. He knows there's not really any good outcome of Nick knowing this information. Raphael asks, do you need me and my friends to help? Are we going to need guns? Nick is horrified. No, no, you're a promising young student. Stay out of this. Just see if you can get the info for me. Then Nick gets back to work on his suit of armor. He finds out that Emily is going to Boston for a week to show some of her art there, and sure he'll miss her, but this also rids Nick of any witnesses to whatever it is he's planning. The thing is, it's not looking a whole lot like there is a plan. Nick doesn't even know where all of this is leading. TV's Harry Morgan here again to make extra sure Nick doesn't recognize any of the faces in that binder. Nick claims not to know a thing at all. Well, shucks. Bet it was that Emil Horst guy, though, since he works for that mob boss, Kermit Haas. Oh well, back to hanging out in Peoria with Mildred, I guess. Exit TV's Harry Morgan. Apparently, there's a leap ahead in time because somehow Nick now has a mobile headquarters van complete with wheelchair lift gate, and surely someone had to help him put this together in the couple of days since Emily went to Boston. So surely someone now knows what Nick's up to, but nope, just go with it. Go with it. Nick drives his massive and instantly recognizable new ride to the home of one Emil Horst. He tells Horst that he's going to wind up behind bars, and then Haas will be next. Then he carefully puts it into reverse, backs out of the driveway slowly, turns carefully, and goes back to where he parks his mobile headquarters. Of course, Horst has him tailed, and Horst comes that night to the garage housing Nick's mobile HQ vehicle. 
Nick is inside the vehicle, very aware that Horst is here to settle the score. Nick hoists himself into something that looks not unlike a giant panini maker with a human-shaped cutout. Emil Horst pulls out his gun when the back of Nick's vehicle opens up, and there stands Exoman. Impervious to bullets, slow and lumbering, powerful enough to stop a vehicle. He's a slow-moving, bulletproof, walking iron lung of justice, who looks kind of like the awkwardly phallic love child of Darth Vader and the Kool-Aid Man. Horst tries to get away, and Exoman has already pretty much rendered Horst's car useless. Horst starts climbing a pipe to get away, and the pipe detaches from the building, and Horst plummets to his death! Which is just as well, because Exoman is in trouble. Nick really needs to beef up the oxygen supply and the batteries on this thing, because he was pretty much a spectator to Horst's accidental suicide. I mean, sure, he immobilized the car and lumbered around menacingly, but that's about all. And now he's immobilized, too. A passing street kid sees he's trying to reach one of the controls on his wrist and presses it for him, opening the airtight, bulletproof visor of Nick's helmet and, quite frankly, saving his life. Clearly, a little more XORND is needed, but hey, Emil Horst is dead and one freaked-out street kid is running for the hills. Nick is recovering from his experiences and considering his next move when Emily comes home early from Boston. He tells her about his first adventure in the Exoman suit, and Emily is quite rightly kind of horrified that Nick lured Horst out of hiding and then planned to do what exactly. Nick admits there was no plan, but the problem did kind of take care of itself. Now, what to do about mob boss Kermit Haas? The Exovan... Now, nobody in the show calls it that, but damn it, I have to. The Exovan pulls up near the fence outside Haas's compound, and out pops Exoman, making quick work of both the fence and the armed guards. Haas himself shows up, gun in hand, to deal with Exoman personally, but he simply gets swept out of the way. Not killed or even seriously injured, just kind of knocked over and chased off. Exoman breaks into the file cabinets because Kermit Haas is a very organized proponent of organized crime and actually keeps files on his crimes. And those files are dropped off right where the governor's organized crime commission can find them. Haas and his goon squad are rounded up to serve some serious time because apparently he kept very good files detailing all of his criminal activities. TV's Harry Morgan shows up again to ask Nick, how did you do that? Nick, sitting in his wheelchair next to his oversized obvious mobile headquarters vehicle, says he has no idea. TV's Harry Morgan just nods and says, well, me and the governor may have more things for you to not have any idea how to take care of soon. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And the future looks bright for Nick and for Exoman. Until it doesn't, because this didn't make it past the pilot movie. The end. With a script based on a story by Martin Caden and Henri Simon, and directed by Richard Irving, all of whom were involved in the pilot movie that launched The Six Million Dollar Man, which was based on Caden's novel Cyborg, it's pretty clear that NBC was ready for some bionic action of its own. We're basically getting the band back together that launched Steve Austin on his way, so it should work, right? But despite a lot of the same ingredients and a very similar setup, I mean, Steve Austin barely survives a plane crash, gets a bionic glow-up, while Nick Conrad is attacked and paralyzed and devises technological means to overcome that, Exoman was not picked up as a series, despite the pilot movie making a decent ratings showing as a movie of the week. 
It's tempting to say that Lee Majors was the missing ingredient here, but David Ackroyd is clearly not meant to have the same kind of macho swagger. He's kind of an eccentric college professor with a strong sense of justice. And you know, once again playing showrunner, the home game here, and wargaming this forward a bit into a series that of course never happened, it would be interesting to see if maybe Nick Conrad's beliefs in harnessing the forces of nature dovetail with a belief that there's a kind of natural justice and that as Exoman he is just doing the universe's bidding. Now that could actually be a character flaw, a bit of an Achilles heel, and an interesting one if a series had happened, though I'm not sure 70s TV would have played with that idea the way that I'm thinking of it in my head now. It would have been very episodic, and let's just come right out and say it, very formulaic. You probably could have written in Nick's name over Steve Austin's, Harry Morgan's character over Oscar Goldman, and reused some early $6 million man scripts here. Now that brings me to this question. Was Harry Morgan going to be a part of this going forward? Colonel Potter made his MASH entrance in 1975, so Harry Morgan had been on MASH for a couple of years at this point. Was he seriously looking at either reducing his presence on MASH or switching to an Exoman series altogether? I can't even picture that because MASH was such a success story by 1977 that the regular cast members could just about write their own checks, within reason, come contract renegotiation time. I just can't see bailing on one of the most beloved shows in the history of American television for a gig where you show up week after week and give a guy in a wheelchair his marching orders. I mean, I'm sure playing Potter was getting to be kind of a well-worn routine. It's not for nothing that Harry Morgan wound up on MASH, precisely because McLean Stevenson had gotten tired of his part in the same show. I, I just can't picture it, though. There are other ways an Exoman series might have influenced 70s TV. If Jack Colvin's character, you know, he's kind of the mob enforcer, the chief mob enforcer, if he got out of jail and became a recurring threat, would he have been available to be in The Incredible Hulk, which started in 1978? Other familiar faces included Anne Shadeen as Emily Frost. She later found her footnote in sci-fi history as the mom on ALF. Raphael is depicted as a Latino kid. If he was written as a white kid, would the do you need me and my buddies to show up with guns, would that still have been in the script? Or are the writers dropping kind of an unfortunate stereotype in our laps? For some reason, that line just kind of stuck out to me as like, you know, okay, would he still be offering to show up with armed friends if the character was not Latino? So here's the crazy thing that may well be the only place you've ever seen any clips of Exoman. Sometime back, some clever YouTuber spliced scenes of Nick climbing into his armor-encasing panini maker in the Exovan and then emerging in the suit, together with clips from the 70s TV versions of Captain America, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, and even the live-action Spider-Man series starring Nicholas Hammond, to create a mock trailer for a 1970s TV version of The Avengers, that never actually existed. The idea being that the Exoman scenes aren't Nick Conrad suiting up as Exoman, but a very 70s Tony Stark suiting up as Iron Man. Now the funny thing is, there are some precursors to the cinematic Iron Man here, especially the handful of um, scenes where you can see what's happening inside the helmet. You have this big close-up of Nick's face whenever he's wearing the Exoman suit which are very clearly precursors to very similar scenes that are all over the Iron Man and Avengers movies in the modern Marvel Cinematic Universe. And 
I kind of find myself wondering if that may not be the, one of the reasons Exoman didn't go on past its pilot. Someone in NBC's legal department may have realized at the last minute that reassembling the creatives behind the launch of the $6 million man had resulted in a kind of a rewrite of Iron Man's origin story. Oops. And yet, all Marvel crossover kidding aside, Exoman's DNA kind of carries forward. You can see it reassert itself in the 90s Fox series Mantis, which puts Carl Lumley in a wheelchair as a scientific engineering genius who built a supersuit that restores his mobility and gives him the ability to fight crime. You see it in lots of places. But the only place you can actually go back and see Exoman is on YouTube, where somebody taped a Saturday afternoon movie replay of it, complete with vintage commercials. This is almost certainly something that was in the works and filmed before Star Wars premiered, and one wonders if that played into the decision not to go to series. Oh, hey, people suddenly want spaceships, and robots, and special effects, and laser blasts and explosions, and we have crime-fighting guy in a really slow robotic suit. Yeah, that ain't gonna work. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by DZ and Andrew Howes also licensed under Creative Commons. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep the Logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Philip, Kevin, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley, and sign up as a patron at Patreon.com slash the Logbook. If monthly contributions aren't your thing, and we totally get that too, you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook as well. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, other clothing, and household goods, and even face masks and more from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, with designs featuring everything from classic Odyssey 2 games and classic space missions to, you guessed it, hashtag floaty robot buddies. You can order all sorts of things from Amazon and eBay through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com store, and if you like watching stuff, feel free to sign up for Paramount Plus or Hulu through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the Logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. Any witnesses?